Now we go before the Lord uh, together in praying, praying for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and in all the earth, but also praying for the needs that we have both locally here, but also throughout the world. Let us go before him in prayer. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that as we gather as your people, you give us the great honor and privilege to be a people that can have great intercession before your great throne. We thank you, O Lord, for that opportunity. In, in that manner, O Lord, we lift up our civil realm to you. We think of those, O Lord, who serve uh, in, in our military in our own country. We think of those who often visit our own church from Scott Air Force Base, just not too far from here. We pray, O Lord, that those who serve to protect our freedoms, that, O Lord, you, by your grace, would use faithful, gospel-believing chaplains to renew but also to evangelize those who do not know you. We pray, O oh Lord, in a thankful heart for the various freedoms that are protected by these service members, but we also pray, O oh Lord, for more greatly their own salvation. We pray that you would raise men up to bring the gospel as chaplains to those who serve our country so selflessly. We pray also, O oh Lord, for mission in your church. We think of ITEM, the ministry that we support that trains uh, missionaries to plant churches throughout the world. We thank you, O oh Lord, for Will Hesterberg, as he has tirelessly gave much of his time and gives much of his time to this ministry. We pray, O oh Lord, that he, as he travels in the coming weeks or months, to various parts of the world, that you, O Lord, would be gracious to him in that travel. But not only that, O Lord, that you'd use this ministry to train men well for the ministry. We pray that through item and its effective ministry that we have heard time and time again, that many churches would be planted, and even more that many, many, many people would come to know you, O Lord, as the true and living God. We pray that you continue to bless this ministry. And that in its blessing, we would see the fruit of that by seeing many churches come professing faith on Sunday to worship you. We pray also, O oh Lord, for those who are lost. We think of those who are lost on the continent of Africa this morning. We know, O oh Lord, that there are many false gospels throughout that continent. Whether it be false religions flat out with tribal religion or Islam or maybe even prosperity gospels that are faux Christianity, that truly do not know you as the Savior, but claim to. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue your work on the continent of Africa. Often so many encouraging ministries there. We think of African Bible College and their service to the broader church. But we pray, O oh Lord, that there would be a continued sustained revival on that continent. And that those who do not know you would come into contact with the true and living God through the Son who died for them. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would see great fruit in that region of the world. In like manner, O oh Lord, we pray for fruit in our own congregation. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the women's ministry that you have blessed this congregation with and the various leaders and officers that serve therein. We pray, O oh Lord, that as they continue another year of ministry among us, that as that ministry is felt by our congregation, there would be a gratefulness that wells up within us for it. But we pray also, O oh Lord, that 
you would continue to sustain our women, that they would grow in sanctification, that their holiness would be reflective of the work of Christ in their own lives. We pray for Chris and Julie as they oversee this ministry, that you'd be kind to them in sustaining not only their lives, their families' lives, and the ministry that they oversee here at Providence. Be with our women, O Lord, that their ministry might grow in confidence of Christ as we all wish in our own lives. We also pray for help, O Lord. As we announce a conference coming up, we pray, O Lord, that with all the intricacies that are involved with it, that you'd be gracious to the committee that oversees it. We pray for our sister church, Center Grove, as we partner with them in this endeavor. We pray, O Lord, that this would be a time that would honor you. But be with those who are planning the ministry there. We also pray for Aaron's mother. We pray for Nancy. We pray that you would continue to be her sustaining hope. And in that sustaining hope, that even if she may at once forget you, you do not forget her. And that by your grace, you care for even her now as she is not with us. We pray, O Lord, that any issues that she might have, that doctors would immediately care for her well, and that you would give the Walters family encouragement, that you would sustain them as they care for Nancy. O Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9. Turn there with me. In Luke 9, we see that Jesus kind of turns his attention away from the ministry that he has been doing and to the disciples. And so throughout all of chapter 9, we see Jesus' focus is almost solely on the disciples and their ministry. We remember earlier in the Gospel of Luke that the Lord Jesus said to Peter and his fishermen that I will make you fisher of men. And today we see that perhaps most poignantly as Jesus sends out the disciples to both proclaim the kingdom of heaven and to heal in his name. And we see the fruit of that labor that at the end of the passage today that a multitude gather. They gather to hear from Jesus. The disciples have become fishers of men. Stand then in reverence as we hear from Luke chapter 9. We'll pick up in verse 1 and go through to verse 17. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they, shall de- and they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that, ha- that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah has appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, 
But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provision, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups about each 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And, when, and what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Here ends our gospel lesson, and this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> I don't know if you're familiar with the He Gets Us campaign. It's a a pre-evangelism campaign, and during the Super Bowl this year, they bought a one-minute ad space. I don't want to know the cost of a one-minute ad space during the Super Bowl, but actually I do. I looked it up, and this ad cost around $7 million to produce, $7 million to produce. I'm not going to throw too much shame on proto-pre-evangelism campaigns, but I had to wonder after looking up the cost of this campaign, was that the best use of kingdom dollars? Are there better ways to spend seven million dollars than pre-evangelism of still shots or videos of having people wash other people's feet? Is that the best way? Perhaps it is, perhaps it is not. I personally find the ads a little cringy and gimmicky. I don't find them to be of too much help. But I do wonder, what should we spend our time and money on? Well, in the passage that we have today, we see what Jesus wants his disciples to spend their time, perhaps even their money on, as he sends them out into the community. Jesus doesn't have any gimmicks or any cringy takes. He sends us out. He sends us out to preach and proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and to heal, to offer care to those who are downcast. And what we see in this passage is that he directs our work, he expands our work, and he sustains our work when we are on the correct mission. That is when he brings his blessing. But we must know that mission, and that's the purpose of today's sermon. We must know that mission. Some of us might have too narrow of a mission of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might solely boil it down to the preaching of the word that happens here. This is the ministry. This one hour on Sunday, that is all it is. 
We might miss out on part of the missional scope that we see here in Luke 9. But others of us might think too broadly of the mission. We think perhaps everything is mission. Picking that watermelon at the local grocery store is ministry to the Lord as I glorify Him. Perhaps more commonly, though, we think of any sort of self-service or service that we offer to the broader public. Social service. Is that the mission? Today, I hope to correct both of those and to narrow us in, perhaps broaden some and narrow others as we look at the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and me. And so what I want you to know today is that Jesus makes our ministry effective. He is the one that makes our ministry effective, but we must know how he does so. And the first thing we see in this passage and the main meat of today is that Jesus directs our ministry. He blesses a ministry that he directs. We see this in verses 1 and 2, and he called the 12 together and gave them power, authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. We see that there is a twofold task that Jesus Christ himself gives to the disciples. The first is the reign of God. You are called to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God to all the earth. And second, in light of that, you are also to heal. Both of these things are almost like a double helix, twisted and bound together, inseparable in many ways. But the first they are called to do is to declare. They had a message, in other words, that they were called by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to proclaim. And that is the message of the kingdom of God coming in the gospel. The kingdom of God here is not some territory to be protected by an army on a map. Rather, it is the sovereign dominion over our hearts by God himself. And that is what they are to proclaim. That if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will reign over your life. And in that reign, he will redeem and restore you from your sin. Most poignantly then developed in your current healing. It was the substance of the gospel message. The disciples were called to go out and bring this substance to the people. They must know the weight of their sin. They must know their need for a Savior. And they must know who that Savior is as He comes into this world to save them. The gospel message is not limited to the oldest among us, nor as we go throughout the whole congregation, even the youngest, the smallest baby in our congregation. This is the message for them, that you have great sin. And you need a great Savior, and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And when you believe in Him, the great exchange takes place as you give the Lord your sin, and He gives you His righteousness. That's the substance of the message. That is the kingdom that the Lord Himself seeks to draw in. But it's not the only thing the disciples are called to do. They are also called to heal. I like what... Norvell Gelden Hayes, an interesting name, said about this passage. He said, we must go into the world and one, preach the kingdom of God. We must summon mankind to the realization of his divine and saving sovereignty that has manifested itself in the advent, passion, and triumph of Christ. And two, 
we must continue his work of mercy by working also for the deliverance of mankind from their physical need. Through poor relief work, caring for orphans, service to those in the hospital, prayers for the sick, working among prisoners, and undertaking other services in a suffering humanity. You see, these things are bound together as one message. These are not two messages. Sometimes when we have mission drift within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is because we begin to abstract one of these parts from the other. But what we learn is that the social service that the church offers here in the gospel is bound and linked to the gospel itself. In other words, it might be inappropriate to just go and feed frontline workers as the church without any gospel connection there. But if a ministry, as we feed those frontline workers, is grounded in teaching and proclaiming Christ, that is when we are on that mission. And I don't hear what I'm not saying. It's good to do service. It's good to be kind, model citizens. But we cannot fool ourselves into thinking that ministry is ministry without the gospel. And so Jesus directs us. We have to know That when we socially serve those who are downcast, poor, in prisons, those who are widows, those who are impoverished, it is always in that helix of gospel truth. We teach them, yes, we can help you, but there is a greater need than your physical betterment. There's a binding here. I want you to understand that in your mind today. There's a binding between what we say and what we do as the church. And that the mission of the church, as I understand it in this passage, is bound in both mercy and proclamation. Never divorce those things from one another. But notice also how Jesus sends them. This is still under that same idea of as Jesus is sending them and and in that commission of directing how he sends them. He detaches them from the world in verse 3. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staves, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. It's an interesting call. Perhaps you're, you're, you're coming to your senses. The first part of this directing makes sense. The gospel must be wedded with your service. Well, why does Jesus seem to handicap them? I want you to go out to proclaim, but I don't want you to prepare for it. Think of the difficulty. When is the last time you went on a trip and you did not prepare? Never. None of you have just gotten in your car, unless you're odd and weird, and have just left. You pack. Even in a hasty travel experience, you prepare. But Jesus says no. For your journey, take nothing, not even a staff to lean on, not bread, no money. Oh, the anxiety-inducing experience it would be for me to have no money, no clothes, no staff, no bread, no bag to hold anything, just me, me, myself, and the current clothes that I wear, nothing in my pockets. It sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. Marissa's brother-in-law is a sergeant in the army, uh, and this guy is prepared for anything and everything, 
And whenever we go up for Christmas to visit the family, uh, I, I almost put him in cardiac arrest because of how ill-prepared. I am not ready for a crisis situation. I don't have blankets in my car. I don't have an extra pair of gloves, a flashlight. I mean, he has the whole, every car he owns is kitted out with survival gear. But this is a guy that also jumps from planes and is expected in training to survive in wilderness with no supplies. So it makes sense. He's always prepared. And I am never prepared, but I'm always prepared enough. You know, I got my MacBook. I got my chargers. I got my, my clothes. You know, that, that's, that's preparedness for me. But Jesus is saying, take none of even that. Why? That's what I wonder. Why? And it is because it is to convey to the people that they are preaching that they are detached from the cares of the world. They are detached from the concerns of everyday life because they are focused on that mission. They are not distracted. They are in tune and focused. Jesus isn't saying, do as I say and not as I do, though. We remember in Luke chapter 3, Jesus goes into the wilderness with nothing. No food. One in the same exact outline here, no money. One tunic. And he's tempted by Satan to make bread out of rocks and to have dominion. Jesus is saying, do as I do. Part of the gospel message is trusting and relying on God. And so in this first point, we see that we are called as believers, as Jesus directs us in this passage, one, to preach the gospel message of salvation in compassionate love to those who are downcast and dead in their sin, and two, to trust in God while doing it. I'm not saying that you should no longer pack for any trips. I don't think that's the underlying principle to take away. The underlying principle is that why Jesus asked the disciples to do this is that they themselves would trust in God. That, In other words, they would trust the message that they're preaching. They're not merely peddlers of the word. They're not beggars. They're trusting in God because what they preach shows that they themselves believe they are delivered. And in the same way, we are called to preach and to teach, and to witness in that manner. Not to be beggars, not to be peddlers, but to be people that are truly transformed by how we look, talk, and address. You see, in this time, and in, in the ancient Rome, the way that philosophers would travel is they would do something similar to what Jesus is doing here. They would go out, and Paul tried to push back against this heavily in his epistles, they would go out and bring their philosophy And one of the great things that distinguished them and why Jesus gives them this command, perhaps, is that they wouldn't ask for money. You paid a preacher on his preaching. And so if it was a good sermon, you showered him with money. If it was a bad teaching, you withheld your money. I mean, think of the passion and the pain of such a situation, even for myself. I'd hate to rely on your money in that regard. (laughs) Bad sermon preached, no money for you. You cannot live this week. But the good philosophers, the good teachers of antiquity would just go from house to house, teaching and collecting, teaching and collecting. Their message was peddled as wide as could be. And Jesus says, don't go from house to house. Don't go with pockets of money. Go to just merely be provided for in your most basic needs and stay there. The ancient philosopher would have saw this as folly. You must go from house to house. 
That is how you make money. That is how you succeed. That is how you are successful. But Jesus says, do not peddle. Do not beg. Share the message. And he even gives them a template for what happens when people reject the message. We see this in verse 5. Whatever they do, not receive you. When you leave that town, shake off the dust of your feet as the testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So in verse 5, we see what do we do when people reject the message? When we come proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and compassion and love, caring for those who are downcast, trusting in God, Jesus doesn't have such a conflated opinion of the message that everyone will receive it. He is realistic, perhaps more realistic than us at times, that some will choose not to receive it. What does he say then? To shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. What does that mean? It's probably one of the Christian's favorite phrases. I've heard it so often. Dust off your feet. Yeah, that's, that, that seems like a terrible person. Just dust off your feet and move on. It's not a, it, it perhaps is a ceremonial gesture, but that's not the main focus here. It's not merely a severed relationship. Sometimes I think we use it to say that you're dead to me. Uh, dusting off my feet with you, I want nothing to do with you, you're out of my life. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying either. I think what Jesus is saying to his disciples is bound in those last three words of verse 5, testimony against them. In other words, as you leave the town and they reject you, dust off your feet in order to show them that because you have rejected this message, you incur the impending doom of God upon yourself. That is what you are saying to people. Whenever you use that, word, that phrase flippantly, you are saying you are impending the doom of God on your own shoulders. It is an evangelistic tool. <laughs> it's part of the message. When we call and do this act, it is to the end of seeing them come to faith in Christ. It is not, in a sense, the final act. Jesus would again send these same disciples back to these villages. It was not a final act. They would go again and they would dust their feet off again. They would go again, they would dust their feet off again. It was a rhythm and routine. But there was the reminder every time they left and you did not know, they wanted to ensure that you knew the consequence of not knowing. Christians can sometimes needlessly complicate the ministry. We have all sorts of various things that tempt us in order to how we grow and secure the future health of the church. We think that perhaps of providence. Well, what do we need? What, what are the things we need to do as a church? And sometimes we can get distracted. We can get so consumed by sustaining our own congregation that we forget the message and the directive behind the message. We can become distracted by various gimmicks and fads. I remember in the early 2000s, the worship wars. How many churches split in the early 2000s because of music? Well, how do we save the people? We have to change the church's music. My good friend Randy Thompson came to faith during the Jesus Revolution and he was hoping that he would turn the RPCES and then the PCA into a contemporary church. And I remember him telling the stories often of being under the ministry of Robert Rayburn over at Covenant Seminary during the 1980s. 
And he said by the time he, was, he left there, he had traded all of it for a traditional approach to worship. Why? Because there was a honing in. And I'm not trying to, to jump ugly with types of music within the church, but sometimes we can see that, that what we save people with is what we save them to. And we can forget that we choose our taste in music because of the mere end of trying to protect and sustain the church. I have no issue with guitars or things of that nature. I enjoy them. And maybe it's appropriate at times to have them in worship. But why? The motivation, the directive is what is important. I'm reminded also in that same end of the Asbury revivals a year ago. Do you remember those? Everyone proclaimed revival in Asbury. I was reading an article earlier this week that came to the conclusion that there was no revival in Asbury, which is an interesting conclusion. They surveyed the churches in the surrounding community, and there was no church change or growth. The revivals started and ended in that one week in February one year ago. Gimmicks, fads, are not what draw people to Christ. What you save people with is what you save them to. That's not my phrase, by the way. Stolen from a thousand other preachers and a thousand other literary authors. Jesus makes our ministry effective. I know that was a large first point. But Jesus directs our ministry. The second point is that Jesus expands our ministry. We see the effective nature of the ministry in verse 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah appeared, and by others that one of the prophets had risen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. We see that Jesus' ministry cascades. It goes from one man preaching the gospel of Christ and healing to 13, including Jesus himself. That's a 1,200% increase. Think of the sort of influence that would have in the surrounding Judean area. It was felt by all, so felt, that Herod, a leader within the country, in the political sense, came to know what was happening. Became known to him. After Jesus sends out the twelve, it becomes murmured in the public square. Think of the difficulty and the logistics of that having come to reality. We live in a, a world where I can sync my iPad to my computer and have my whole sermon. I can go on social media and see all of the news can go on the internet and read to my heart's delight and connect with someone on the other side of the world. It is so easy for news to be disseminated. Maybe too easy for news to be disseminated in our own context. This is by word of mouth. Herod had not one visitor, but many visitors who were sharing this message. It seems that someone had raised John from the dead. This is a ministry that is perhaps becoming a usurping factor within his own kingdom. There are six Herods in the New Testament. I didn't know if you knew that. You know a few of them. They're all related, so it kind of makes sense. You know, I, it, you, some, of Her, some of the Herods named multiple children the same Herod. The, the presumptuous nature, if I named all of my children Scott, Scott 1, 2, and 3, it, it would be quite astonishing. 
That's what they did in the Old Testament or New Testament here. There's Herod, obviously, you know, the great. That was the one who, when Jesus uh, was born and the Magi came and they asked questions, he killed all the children in Bethlehem. We are now dealing with his son, Herod Antipas. You had a brother who was also Herod. And then later in the Gospels, we see that there's Herod Agrippa I. But not only that, there's another Agrippa, Herod II, who is his brother. And there's even one, if you look in the Gospel of Mark, just ever so slightly, in chapter 6, verse 27, a guy named Philip. Well, I think it got too confusing after five. And so that guy's also Herod. Herod Philip, the first, if it were. There are six. This is the second the one who was son to Herod the Great, and this one who knew perhaps of the stories of his father, now is perhaps worried his father was unsuccessful. I want to know, I want to see, I want to hear about this man. And so what does he do at the end of verse 9? He sought him. Why did he seek him? Well, it's because Jesus' ministry was great. It was so great that it became what people talked about regularly. It went viral in the ancient Near East. Everyone knew there's a gravitas behind the type of ministry that Jesus was leading. It was great, and it was known. He had a meteoric, uh, a meteoric rise, as it were. So Herod is known. And so Herod also wants to meet him. It's interesting. Jesus never meets this Herod, I don't believe. But this Herod wants to meet him. It's kind of ironic as Jesus goes out preaching the good news of the gospel to all people, one who wants to meet him, Jesus never meets. He actually avoids him. He leaves as we get down to the last point here in a few minutes. He leaves his jurisdiction to evade him because he wants nothing to do with him. But this Herod wonders, who is this man? Wonders, is it John? I know I killed him. I saw his head roll. Is it Elijah? Is it some other prophet. You see, this Herod had a curiosity about Jesus, perhaps an intellectual curiosity, but he did not believe him. Though the ministry of Jesus expands, not only does it expand, not all who it expands to receive it well. We see that in the life of Herod. I have a curiosity of meeting many people, but that doesn't mean I believe them to be the Son of Man. I would love to meet Kanye West. Seems like an interesting figure. I mean, who wouldn't take a chance to meet Donald Trump, whatever your political persuasion is? The Rock, dare I say, maybe Taylor Swift. I would like to meet all these people. I, and I'd probably in that order, if you wanted to know my order. Uh, they're just curious people. And Herod is curious about Jesus like I'm curious about Kanye West. Do I believe Kanye West? Do I, do I, do I take his word as, as law? I don't, which is good. But I'm curious. And Herod has that same curiosity towards Jesus Christ. The expansion of the ministry, though, we see perhaps in an applicatory sense, does not rely upon our own doing. See, who does Herod talk about? He doesn't talk about the twelve. He doesn't talk about those who go out to preach the good news. He doesn't go talk about them healing. It all gets funneled back to Jesus. The expansion of the ministry, the work of the ministry, is made known and blessed by Jesus himself. It cannot bear fruit outside of his gracious work. He's the one that gets the glory. 
because it is he who the message is behind. Now, I'm not arguing that because Jesus is the one that brings people to himself, that that means that you get to be negligent or derelict in your duties. Oh, well, Jesus, Scott, oh, I don't know why you even prepare for messages. I don't have any responsibility. No, look at what the disciples do. They don't say, well, Jesus, you just do the hard work because you're the one that's going to make it effective no matter what. There's a part to play for every Christian in this expanding effort of the ministry. We don't bring people to Christ in that we save them, but we do share the good news of Christ so that he may be known. Know the ordinary work of the gospel. It is not made effective or more affected by thrills within our church. We can't install zip lines in our sanctuary and expect more people to know Christ because of it. Look at the ordinary nature. Sending out teaching, preaching, and healing, having compassion for those who are sick, that is what draws people to Christ. Not the the gimmicks or fads, but Jesus himself. The last thing I want you to see then is that Jesus supplies our ministry. That's what we see in this last passage. Some of you might stone me for making this one sub-point because it seems like such an important part of the New Testament, but it's one pericope. Verse uh, verse 10, as Jesus feeds the 5,000, their apostles, after they were done in their ministry, uh, returned and told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew to a part of town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned this, they followed him and welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who were in need of healing. It seems that the mission continues. After the disciples are drawn back, what does Jesus do? He tries to take, you know, his Sunday off. He tries to, to recline back, to draw back out of society. And the very people likely that the disciples had been preaching to hear where Jesus is, and now they want to see him for themselves. The crowds hear and gather. This is how the disciples become fishers of men. It is quite ironic then that they are feeding people bread and fish. It is interesting that their ministry sees the fruit therein. It's not because of their own work, but because of the person behind their work. And they gather. Herod doesn't get the memo, apparently, because he never attends. But there is a multitude a multitude that gather. And as they gather, verse 12, now the day began to wear away and there became a problem. As Jesus was healing and, and as, he was, as he was preaching, the crowd became hungry. If I were a disciple, I would probably agree. It would have been a 12 to 1 vote against Jesus here. Send the crowd away and go to the surrounding village and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. It makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, we've had our seminar, we've had our preaching, we've had our healing. Jesus, now think of the logistics of this situation, Jesus. There are 5,000 men here. We can't feed all these people. First of all, we withdrew to a desolate place. There's nowhere to get food. There's no McDonald's. There's no food here. We can't do this. Not only that, think of the, if they had enough food, the difficulty. <laughs> Once I had 40 people in my home, and I felt like I was running around with my head cut off trying to make sure that the party stayed together. My wife probably felt the same way. 40 people. 
Now blow that up to 5,000, but it's even worse than that. It's not just merely 5,000. It's 5,000 men, not even a reference to their children and the women that were with them. A general assembly every year, there are 2,000 commissioners, but that doesn't mean there are 2,000 people there. If you go to general assembly, you'll see the, the wives of pastors, their children. A general assembly, a 2,000 commissioner assembly, there are 5,000 plus people. Most of them not engaged in the business of the church, but they are there nonetheless. They worship God together with their families. This is a similar type of situation. Jesus is counting like a Presbyterian here. He counts the commissioners. But there are likely ten to 15,000 people here. I don't even, that, that's, that's the town of Troy. I, would, I don't know how I would feed the town of Troy. It seems so impossible. But Jesus, perhaps, and why we read Exodus 16 twice over here in recent months is because of the short-sightedness of the disciples. They had seen Jesus do so much, but they wonder again in their incomplete knowledge whether he could do this. This passage harkens us back to the Exodus account where the people of God go in the wilderness, they complain to God and grumble because apparently they had better meat and food in Egypt as slaves than in the wilderness. And God does what? He provides for them. Bread and quail. Here in the New Testament version, bread and fish. It's also a call back to Elisha and his ministry as he fed a hundred men with 20 loaves of bread. Jesus does more with less. And he says to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. And they did so. And they had them sit down. And taking five loaves and two measly fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing for them and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. It's a true miracle. Five loaves, two fish, 15,000 people, worst case scenario. The Lord's provision. Those baskets must have had some sort of interesting Harry Potter magic that just kept going down no matter how much he reached in. It was an incredible experience. True miracle as those who are there are fed. Jesus doesn't merely supply us with the message. He doesn't merely supply us with the directive. He doesn't merely expand our ministry as we seek to share Christ, he also supplies it. Even when it seems best to send everyone home, he says, I will supply for this ministry. And he supplies our ministry here as well. You know, sometimes we talk about pastoral and ministerial burnout. Pastors are always talking about it. Perhaps church members who do 80% of the work, you're talking about it. You're just so stretched thin. But the reminder here for all of us is that the Lord supplies our ministry. When we take the burden of ministry upon our own shoulders, that is when we burn out. When the success of Providence Presbyterian Church rests on my shoulders and my shoulders alone, that's when those failures destroy me. I must trust in the Lord as you trust in the Lord, that His sustaining grace will supply all that we need. For the Christian today, you need to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that sustains your ministry. Our church has been through a lot. You have all known this all too well. And humanly speaking, if it were up to us, 
none of us would be here today. We would have folded three years ago, no doubt. I mean, what insurmountable odds that you have a pastor here in 2024. It's because the Lord himself, according to his steadfast love and grace, remains our sufficient Savior. He is the one that sustains providence and sustains you and your families as well. And so our calling here today is to do as the disciples did, to take that message into all the world. Perhaps you don't feel the most gifted speaker, and that's fine. You witness by drawing people in. Be like the disciples that went out and shared and then drew them into the assembly that as they were fed by Christ, Christ also fed them both spiritually and physically. That's the call, to bear witness. We're called, and reminder, not to shed away from what is tried and true in Luke chapter 9. Not be distracted by gimmicks and fads, but to double down on the old paths, the paths of what we are doing here today. Preaching, sharing, hearing the word, and worshiping God together. But maybe you're a non-Christian here today. Maybe you're a child who does not know Christ or someone who's attended church a long time and thought you knew Christ. Maybe you're like Herod. Maybe you have a curiosity for who Jesus is. You might not wonder if he's John the Baptist or some prophet, but you have a curiosity like I have a curiosity for some of the people I mentioned a few minutes ago. You're curious about this person, Jesus. What kind of teacher is he? failing to see that he is the Messiah. Maybe you have intrigue, wanting to know more, but not, in, not wanting to know too much. Like Herod, you might have ears, but you might not hear. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not be like Herod, his father before him, and his children after him. When you hear Christ today, call upon him. As the disciples gather and preach Christ both by conviction of song through the reading of Scripture and preaching. Hear Christ today and know Him. Do not harden your hearts, but call upon Him, and He will make you new. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that by Your grace we could gather to worship You. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would focus our eyes and attention on the true meaning of the ministry, to preach the gospel of the coming of the kingdom, and to care for those who are in need, those who are downcast. O oh Lord, we all have deficiencies. Some of us are really good at caring for others, and others of us are really good at listening and learning about gospel truth. May we, O oh Lord, be a people that bind those things together to never separate them again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.